Before we go into Revelation 12, I wanted to finish up with Revelation 11. So if you're following along, please turn to Revelation 11. There was one thing that I wanted to touch on tonight before we go into Revelation 12 this evening. And that is last week, beginning in verse 15 of Revelation 11, we, we looked at the seventh trumpet was being sounded and the arrival of, of Christ's kingdom on earth was being announced once again that the kingdom of the world is now going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And, and Jesus is about ready to, to literally step out, out of heaven and, and come and rule and reign on the earth. But I want, I want us all to see, and, and this isn't something that I think we're going to be able to totally absorb, I guess would be a good word, tonight. But I would like you to think about absorbing this, maybe the rest of this week, and just thinking about it. And, and I'm, I'm talking here about the reaction of the nations of the world to the coming of Christ. I mean, you would think that the creator of the universe, this great and good God who only has our best interest at heart, that he's said he's coming to make things right and set things right on the earth. You would think that everybody would welcome that, right? But look at Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. Then the twenty-four elders who are seated on the thrones before God threw themselves down in their faces to the ground and worshipped God with these words. We give you thanks, Lord God, the all-powerful, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power. And that phrase in the original means you're using what you always had at your disposal. But now you're taking it and actually using it. I mean, you think about down through history, God could at any time have said, I'm taking over. This is, I'm done. But in his patience, in his long suffering, he waits and waits and waits and then finally takes his great power and begins to reign. But notice verse 18. The nations were enraged. That word enraged means they were extremely angry. Think about it. The world is extremely angry that Jesus Christ is coming to make things right in rule and reign. And the primary reason why? Because they don't want to relinquish control. They, they want to be in control. And even though God has allowed them control, if you will, and look at what they've done with the world, and yet they don't want to give control up to God. They don't want to surrender to God. This is the whole really reason why people don't come to Christ in the first place. Forget the whole, they've got to acknowledge sin. They don't even want to give up control. And to understand the gospel is to surrender my life to Jesus Christ and let Him be the Lord of our lives. Now, I don't want to get into this tonight. We're going to get into it a little bit more as we go through Revelation. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. But I do want to touch on this because one of the questions I always get when we do books like Revelation or other books that talk about the eternal punishment of those who reject Christ is how could God allow those who reject Christ to be separated from Him for all of eternity? I just... 
I just don't understand that. And to be honest with you, I don't understand it all either. I'm, I'm not here to say I can totally wrap my mind around it. But what I will say is this. The Bible paints a very clear picture that one of the reasons why it's got to be for eternity is because it's not like these folks who are angry that Jesus Christ is coming to reign is in a hundred years or a thousand years or in a million years going to say, oh, you know what, Lord? Yeah, I want you to be in control of my life. I want to surrender to you. It's not going to be that way. Any more than Satan and, and the fallen angels from heaven sort of said, you know what, God? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should come back and worship you. Never going to be a time like that. And there's never going to be a time like that with human beings who have hardened themselves to the point where they won't repent, they won't come to Christ, they will never want Jesus Christ to rule and reign over them. Never. So that's what we see in Revelation 11. The response of the nations. And if you want some background on this, actually a passage of Scripture that predicts this response, go back this week and read Psalm 2, the second Psalm. Psalm 2 really gives us the, the prophecy, if you will, of, of this happening from the Old Testament perspective. With all that said, that's about all I wanted to finish up with in Revelation 11. I want to get to Revelation 12 and 13 tonight. And the reason why I want to cover both these chapters, if at all possible, is because these two chapters really go together. They are an interlude in the study in the book of Revelation, and they're put here to basically give you and I, the observers of what's going on in the book of Revelation, uh, the cast of characters, if you will. You ever been to a play, or like there, we, a movie or whatever, that there's always the main characters that are listed. And basically what God does in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 is give us the five main characters, if you will, the five prominent figures that are set forth during this tribulation period of seven years on the earth. Now I'm just going to give them to you very briefly and then we're going to talk a little bit about each one of them tonight. The first one is found in verse in chapter 12. It is a woman. And I believe the woman represents the nation of Israel. So Israel is a prominent, obviously, key figure in the tribulation period. And that goes along with Daniel and the book of Daniel that we studied. And, and Daniel's 70th week prophecy that once the church was gone, God would turn his attention back to the nation of Israel for a seven-year period of time. So Israel is a prominent figure in the tribulation period. The next prominent figure that's given to us is in chapter 12, verse 3, this huge red dragon. I believe the huge red dragon represents Satan. And so Satan, obviously, a key figure in the tribulation period. The third key figure in chapter 12 is the woman giving birth to a son, uh, verse 5, a male child. And this male child out of the woman is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously Christ, a key figure throughout the book of Revelation, is also then a key figure in the tribulation period. So in Revelation 12, you have three key figures that are given, three cast of characters, three main characters, if you will, in the tribulation. The woman representing Israel, you have the huge red dragon representing uh, Satan, and you have the male child that comes from the woman representing 
Christ. Then in Revelation 13, we are given two more main characters in the book of Revelation. In chapter 13, verse 1, we are given this beast that comes out of the sea. I believe that this beast coming out of the sea represents the Antichrist. The Antichrist has at least 15 different titles in the New Testament. So he's called a lot of different things. Here in Revelation 13, he's called the beast out of the sea. And so the Antichrist, obviously, is going to be a key figure in the tribulation period. And then in Revelation 13, verse 11, we are introduced to the final main character, the beast who comes from the earth. And I believe this is uh, another character in other places called the false prophet. The false prophet. Now, I want to say this for a moment, too. So you've got five main characters. Israel, you've got Satan, you've got the male child, Jesus Christ, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got the false prophet. And let's remember then within those five characters that you've got what we call the unholy or satanic trinity. That, that in a sense, counterfeits the holy trinity. You've got Satan, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got the false prophet. And they, in a sense, correlate to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it reminds us that Satan is, has always been a counterfeiter, always will be a counterfeiter. And you see that here in Revelation 12 and 13. And, and before we dive into then the specifics of some of this tonight, let me also remind you that this to me is another great evidence that the church is raptured and taken out of the world before the tribulation period because the church is not mentioned as a main character in the tribulation. And folks, if the church was still here during the tribulation period, the church would be a prominent figure in the tribulation period. The fact of of the argument of silence that there is no mention of the church in Revelation 12 and 13, the two chapters that God has, in a sense, designated to show people uh, in Revelation the interlude here of who the main characters are, for the church not to be here to me is a huge statement by God. With that said, let's go and look a little bit closer at the first character, the woman. In Revelation 12.1, John says a great sign, literally a symbolic figure, appeared in heaven. And as you've heard me teach through Revelation, almost always will I interpret things literally. Except when the Bible says, now don't interpret this literally, use this symbolically as a illustration or as a figure, if you will. And that's exactly what's happening here. All right. In a sense, God is saying, this is a symbolic figure that I am giving to you here. All other places where I'm not telling you it's a sign or a symbol, then interpret it literally. Here, interpret it as a symbolic figure. The woman was clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Now, when you and I do Bible interpretation and we try to come to the to the right meaning of something, we've got to look at other places in Scripture where similar things are used and find out what does that mean there and then translate that meaning probably into that meaning. In other words, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Well, the only other place in the Bible where you have a picture of the sun and the moon and 12 stars is back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 37, where, remember, Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, he sees the son, his father Jacob, 
the moon, his mother, Rachel, and his 11 brothers all bowing down to him. And what does that represent? It represents the nation of Israel. And it's also very interesting. What you're going to see tonight is that God certainly looks at Genesis and Revelation as the bookends of the Bible. Because a lot of times, Revelation goes back, as we're going to see tonight, to things we see in the book of Genesis all the way back at the very beginning. So I think, again, this is a great clue that the woman here is none other than Israel. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was screaming in labor pains, struggling to give birth. Once again, we have ties here between the last book of the Bible and the first. Because we see that the curse brought about by the fall, through God saying to a woman, you will now experience pain in childbirth, and the events of this chapter, chapter 12, are really undeniable. These two signs that we're going to see tonight, the woman and the huge red dragon that we're going to be introduced to here in just a moment, find their juxtaposition to highlight the conflict between God's promise to the woman in Genesis chapter 3 and the intention of the dragon to undermine God's work. Because remember, and again, for time's sake, we're not going to go back there, but in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, after Adam and Eve fell... And God pronounced a curse because sin came into the world. That He also went on to say that there's now going to be uh, hostility between your seed and the serpent seed. In other words, between the children of God and the children of the devil. And there's going to be this conflict down through history. And then God predicts that uh, the serpent is certainly going to, to strike but that the the offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And and really what God was predicting in Genesis 3.15 is that one day He was going to send a Messiah, a Redeemer, who was going to once and for all have victory over Satan. It's what we call in theology, we use a fancy term called the Proto-Evangelium, which simply means the first mention of the Gospel in the Bible is Genesis 3.15 where God promises that He's going to send someone who's going to come out of the woman. And that's the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. You see these two now all the way at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, also together as well. Then, verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. A huge red dragon. Red blood dragon fierce, that had seven heads and ten horns. I believe that these, as we've seen in Daniel and now in Revelation, are the kingdoms throughout history of the earth that have been influenced by this huge red dragon. Notice what we learn about the huge red dragon. His tail swept away a third of the stars. Stars in other places in the Bible refer to angels. His tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. We believe that this is a description symbolically of the fallen angels following the influence of Satan. And notice something that maybe you've never seen before. How influential Satan was in the fall of the other angels in heaven. When the Bible says the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars. 
It wasn't like that when Satan rose up in pride and said, I'm not going to worship God any longer. I want to be in control. That somehow all the other angels went, yeah, that's not. No, I think that then Satan used his great influence as one of the great creations of God to influence other angels to follow him. And that's what he's been doing ever since he fell. If he can do that with angels, he can certainly do that with human beings. Which is why the Bible talks to us about being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and the spiritual warfare that we fight with Satan and the demonic forces. Notice the Bible says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. This reminds us not just of when Jesus was born, but of this lengthy pattern throughout history of Satan attempting to destroy the messianic line. If God promised that a Messiah would come through woman and eventually through the nation of Israel, then that's why Satan throughout history has tried to somehow cut that off. If he was able to do that, then the promise of God would be of naught. That, that's why, for instance, from, from God's perspective, it was no big deal because God was always in control. But from a human perspective, can you imagine that at one time in history, all the way back in the book of Genesis, there was only eight righteous people left. The rest of the earth was flooded and God was down to eight. Satan had got it down to eight people on the earth. And yet then they began to multiply and it moved on from there. So you, you can see how Satan has done this. And then when Jesus was born, like Revelation said, what happened? Herod tried to kill all the male children. And of course, Joseph and Mary was warned in a dream. So they took Jesus to Egypt or else he would have been killed. Even back in the book of Exodus... Pharaoh, a tool of Satan, was trying to wipe out the nation of Israel and especially the male children. So you see this pattern down throughout history. And this pattern is again shown to us here in Revelation. But then we come to the third main character. The woman, verse 5, gave birth to a son, a male child who is going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. Obviously, this is reference now to Jesus who comes from the woman, the nation of Israel. Uh, one important thing here that, that I wanted to touch on tonight, the word rule is the Greek word poimen. It, it means that in the sense of ruling, yes, but more of, of, of lovingly leading, guiding, and protecting like a shepherd. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used in the New Testament to describe Pastors, poimen. When, when the Bible talks about pastoring or shepherding, this is the Greek word that is used here. So yes, Jesus is going to rule, but again, like he's always done, he's going to lovingly lead from out front rather than driving the sheep from behind. If, if you ever had studied the, the different ways that shepherds around the world deal with their sheep, there's really, it comes into two basic camps. There are those shepherds who lead from in front, and then there are those shepherds who lead from in back and push or drive their sheep. Uh, the picture that the Bible portrays is that Jesus doesn't fall into that second category. He's not ever going to force us or drive us to do anything, but He will be out in front of us, leading us, guiding us, providing for us and protecting for us. And yes, it will be with a rod of iron. In other words, as he shepherds, 
on his, in his kingdom, it will be a firm hand and it will be a fixed hand, but he's going to do it as a shepherd. And then the Bible tells us her child was suddenly caught up to God into his throne, the ascension of Christ. We saw in the book of Acts chapter one and she now time gap. We talked about that in Daniel time gap. She, the woman, the nation of Israel fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God. So she could be taken care of for 1260 days. Now this is during the tribulation period. Again, that's what confuses people sometimes is the time gaps in prophecy. So you have these three main characters. Uh, moving on just quickly into verse 7. Many people are fascinated by this war that breaks out in heaven between Michael and his angels. And they fight against the dragon and the dragon and obviously the fallen angels. And all I can say to that is, with what weapons and tactics this heavenly warfare will be waged is beyond our understanding. I mean, I don't even know. No, nobody knows. How do angels fight each other? First of all, they can't be killed. Second of all, it's not like, you know, Michael gets out a gun and shoots Satan, you know. So when the Bible says there's war in heaven and these angels are fighting each other, you and I have no concept of what it is. But here's the important point. The important point isn't to try to figure out how they fight each other. The most important point is found in verse 8. And that is that the Bible very clearly tells us. That Satan and his angels had literally insufficient power to withstand Michael and his angels. And so there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that Satan and some demonic forces, fallen angels, still have access to God in heaven. In fact, that's the whole conversation in the book of Job, where Satan is talking to God and talking about Job. Uh, people don't realize that, yes, God still allows them in his sovereignty access. But there's coming a time in the future during the tribulation period that after this war breaks out, that, that Satan will not be allowed or any demons in heaven any longer. Now, the other point I want to make is this. Notice that Christ doesn't even show up for this war. Christ doesn't even condescend to get involved in this war. Because here, here's something, you know, we get so enamored with the angels and stuff that we forget that they're created beings like we are. All Christ would have to do is speak a word, maybe even utter a sound or something, maybe even grunt, and it'd all be over. He's God. He's the Almighty. So he doesn't even get involved in this because he doesn't need to. Michael and his angels can take care of it at this point. It just, again, shows the awesomeness, the holiness absolute separateness of God. But here's what I want to touch on for just a little bit, because this applies to you and I today. He now begins to talk to us a little bit more about this second main character, the huge dragon, Satan. And so he says in verse nine, the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the word devil. The word devil in the Greek language is a compound word. It's diabolo, and it's made up of two words, dia, which means against, and balo, which means to throw. So think about that, that the word devil really means to throw against. And that's exactly what Satan does in our lives. He's always out there throwing things against us. 
He is what I call, too, a master distractor. Not just a master deceiver, as we're going to see. He's a master distractor. He's always out there throwing things our way, hoping that we'll go, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, I... Instead of, you know, the, the Bible calls us as Christians to keep our eyes focused on Christ and, and to be, you know, rock solid in following Christ closely. And yet Satan's out there. And, and we have to learn in a sense, and I know this is maybe a terrible illustration, that we have to learn to have the strength spiritually to move through life knowing that Satan is going to continue to sort of throw balls at us all the time and try to get us distracted from Christ. And we have got to just learn to ignore Ignore all the things that the devil is throwing against us all the time to try to distract us from Christ and what Christ has called us to. And the reason I want to stay here is because, it, again, it gives us an idea through these descriptions of the main characters in the tribulation about things that you and I need to be aware of today as well. Because he hasn't changed. He's the same Satan that was there the, the first time he fell. Second, he's not only a master distractor, he's a master deceiver. He deceives the whole world. Remember the words of Jesus in John 8, 44? Jesus said of Satan, there is no truth in him. No truth in him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no truth in Satan. He is a liar. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in John 8, 44, he is the father of lies. So he's always lying. There is no truth in him at all. That's why he's a master deceiver. And he weaves lies in with truth in order to get people to buy it. He'll never come at us with an 100% lie. He understands. We'll recognize that right away. But many times he will weave a little bit of untruth in with other truth and get us to swallow it. And so we've got to be aware of the fact that the devil is a distractor. He's also a deceiver. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of His Christ have come because the accuser, literally the slanderer of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before the throne of our God has been thrown down. The word accuser, besides meaning slander, was a word used in the Greek language of bringing a legal charge before a judge. In other words, Satan is always saying to God, God, did you see what Jeff did? Oh, did you see that? He's a crumb. He's a scumball. And here's the cool thing. I am. But I'm a saved scumball. And that's why the Bible says in verse 11 about all of us, we overcame him and his accusations and his slander by the blood of the lamb. You see, Satan's accusations toward the believer are essentially made against the perfect righteousness of Christ. Here's why. Because you and I do not stand before God in our own righteousness. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament, our self-righteousness is like filthy rags to God. You and I could never stand before God in our own righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are made righteous through His blood when we accept Him as our Savior. So when Satan accuses a believer, God says, but he's clothed in the righteousness of my Son. What about it? What about it? And that's where you and I, you know, every time we sin, every time we fail, Satan is going to throw it up in our face and make us feel like we are just 
scum. And it's not that we shouldn't feel bad about our sin. It's not that we shouldn't at times mourn over our sin. It's not that that we shouldn't learn to overcome our sin in the power of Jesus Christ. But we've also got to recognize that that we are in a spiritual warfare at that point and Satan knows when we are vulnerable and Satan wants to keep us down and keep us discouraged. And Jesus wants to raise us back up and say, my child, I know you made a mistake. I know you have sinned. You learn from it. Let's get back up and let's move on. Don't let the accuser get the better of you. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb. And so the Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not even love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The rest of chapter 12 basically talks about when Satan is cast out of heaven, he comes to the earth during the tribulation period, and he focuses his anger on the nation of Israel. And we're going to come back to that, Lord willing, in about 10 minutes when we wrap this up. Chapter 13, the Antichrist. Let's talk a little bit about the Antichrist tonight. First of all, I want you to notice this. The main, the main thing I want you to notice about the Antichrist in chapter 13 is found in verse 2. And that is that the dragon gave the beast his power. You see, the, the reason why, even though the Antichrist is a mere man, but why he will be able to do the things he does is because I believe that more than any other human being in history, he will be possessed by Satan himself. He will open up himself to Satan because he finally, in a sense, takes the bait that, that Satan tried in vain to get Christ to do when Christ was here on earth. When he said, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus rejected that offer. I think that the Antichrist somewhere along the line in history is going to accept that offer and say, if you will give me all the kingdoms of the world, I'll worship you. And Satan will infuse the Antichrist and will totally energize everything the Antichrist does. That's important to know. Then you'll also notice that the Bible says that, that he is blasphemous, uh, that, that he counterfeits Christ's death and resurrection in verse 3. He appears to have been killed. A lethal wound appears to have been healed. The whole world will follow the beast in amazement. They worship the dragon, the one behind the beast, giving ruling authority to the beast. And they worship the beast too, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war again? In other words, a perversion of a claim that should go to God is going to the Antichrist during the tribulation. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth speaking proud words and blasphemies. He was permitted to exercise ruling authority for 42 months. He will blaspheme against God. And it goes on and on to talk about how he blasphemes. He's permitted to conquer the saints. He was giving ruling authority, notice verse 7, over every tribe, people, language, and nation. In other words, this speaks, folks, of global control. The Antichrist will be a worldwide kingdom someday. And all those who live on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not found, found written in the book of life. Now, I want to come back to some things here in chapter 13, but let me move on to the false prophet for a moment. Some important points there. 
In chapter 13, verse 11, we're introduced to the false prophet. The false prophet has a similar ministry to that of the Holy Spirit, the one that he sort of is contrasted to in the unholy trinity. The reason I say that is because like the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's ministry is primarily not to ever focus on himself. It is given to us to focus us on Christ. Well, notice in the false prophet's ministry, the Bible says, even though, verse 12, he exercises all the ruling authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, on his behalf, he made the earth and those who inhabit it worship the first beast, you see. He, he wants to take the attention off of himself and put it towards the Antichrist. But notice this, verse 13. He performed momentous signs even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the signs he was permitted to perform on behalf of the beast, he deceived those who live on the earth. He told those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had been wounded by the sword but still lived. And the second beast was empowered to give life to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and could cause all those who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Very important point here, folks. One of the most important points I will make tonight in this message from Revelation 12 and 13 is this. In Revelation 13, 13, one very important biblical principle we learn is this. Signs are unreliable indicators of a work of God. Don't miss that. Signs are an unreliable indicator of the work of God. We become open to deception when our faith is based on experience rather than Scripture. And folks, that's the world we are living in even amongst Christians today. We are living in an experience-oriented Christianity where people base more of the way they live and how they do things and why they do what they do and what they get involved in and what they don't get involved in by how they feel and the experience of it rather than by really knowing what Scripture says. And can I say, I am so glad that at least here, we're going to take responsibility to make that different amongst you and I. Because we are striving to be a people that are not going to live by our feelings and by our experiences and by the signs that we are given, but we're going to live by Scripture. And we've got to learn that when we let Scripture be over signs and experience, we'll never go wrong there. But if you and I put experience or signs above Scripture, we're going to be deceived every time. And I've heard it from Christians over and over in my life. But I experienced this. It's got to be real. As if, because I feel this or whatever, or I've experienced this. I don't care what the Scriptures say. I've experienced it. Folks, that's exactly what the world is going to do to follow the Antichrist. Look at the miracles and signs and all of these wonders that he's doing. He must be real. In fact, I'll even go a step further. Even Jesus' miracles alone were not to be used to steer people towards Him. They were used, if you study the miracles of Jesus, in conjunction with the Old Testament Scriptures that predicted these are the signs that the Messiah will specifically do. So the miracles 
were in conjunction with the Scripture. In other words, they were complementing each other. And that's why they were different. Because the Scriptures foretold, predicted, prophesied what miracles the Messiah would do. The miracles themselves alone would have meant nothing if the Scriptures wouldn't have been there to support it. In fact, Oh, decisions, decisions. Look, go, go to the book of 2 Thessalonians for a moment. I'm going to wrap this up and we'll pick it up next week. I just can't get through it all. So frustrating. I wish we had two hours on Tuesday. Sorry. I know you're like, yeah, right. There'll be five of us here. 2 Thessalonians 2 is a great parallel passage of what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in fact, the whole chapter is about the tribulation period, really. But I want to, I want to camp here on verse 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. Another title of the Antichrist is the lawless one that you see here from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 9. And notice what it says. The arrival of the lawless one will be by Satan's working, exactly what John said in Revelation, Satan is going to energize the Antichrist with all kinds of miracles and signs and false wonders and with every kind of evil deception directed against those who are perishing. And the reason they're perishing is because they found no place in their hearts for the truth so as to be saved. Consequently, God sends on them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now, don't, don't miss that. That before, say, before God sends a strong delusion, they've already been deceived by Satan. You see? And I think the delusion there is in, in Revelation 13, when God, because Satan can't give life to anything, only God can give life. So when God allows Satan and the Antichrist some, some small permission to give life to this image of the beast, I think that that is the strong delusion that Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians. When, when the beast, this image of the beast begins to speak and stuff and appears as if it's alive, I think again, these people have already followed the deception and God is just confirming that deception by giving them even a stronger delusion. But again, you see the importance, if you will, of the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. And yet today, what are people going, oh, miracles, signs, and wonders. Well, the Antichrist is going to use miracles, signs, and wonders. If it's not scriptural, then it absolutely should be rejected. Back to Revelation 13. Let's wrap this up. It's 8 o'clock. Give me two minutes. I can get through this pretty quickly because when you come to verse 15, the entire population of the earth is now in the the tribulation divided into really two groups. Those who retain physical life but forever lose spiritual life versus those who retain spiritual life but are likely to lose physical life being a martyr. Because the Bible says he's going to cause all those who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Will there be people saved during the tribulation? Yes. But you can mark it down. If you won't take the mark of the beast, you're going to be killed, the Bible says. Then notice, verse 16, no exceptions. This is worldwide. Verse 16. He also causes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to obtain a mark. The word mark in the Greek language literally means to engrave or inscribe 
on their right hand or on their forehead. Thus, no one was allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast. You see, the mark emphasizes loyalty to the beast. And in order to enforce worship of the beast, the mark is tied to his global economic system. Guess what, folks? We're moving towards a global economic system. I know whether you've seen that or not in the news, but we're moving towards a global economic system that one day will be taken over by the Antichrist. And then I want to end with this verse, because this verse has caused, oh my goodness, uh, speculation ad infinitum down through history of Christians trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. I, I think I'm going to put this simply, and some of you may be very disappointed in my answer, but hopefully you won't sit there and try to wrestle with the identity of the Antichrist. Because in verse 18, John says, now this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number. For it is man's number. That's a real key. And his number is 666. Now, many Christians and even non-Christians down through history have, I think, mistakenly taken the word calculate, which is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's found in the passage where Jesus says to count the cost of something before you do it. It's the only other time this word in the Greek language is used in the New Testament. And many have then taken this word and went over to the whole area of what's called gematria, which where we get our word for ge geometry, and they've tried down through history to apply that, that letters uh, and have numbered uh, things attached to them, and they've tried to figure out who the Antichrist is by adding up their name to 666. And you and I all know there have been hundreds of possibilities of people's names adding up to 666. And all it makes us as Christians look like is really as foolish as the guy who said Jesus was coming back in May. I'm sorry, I don't think God in this verse has ever told us take letters and numbers and try to figure out this hidden Bible code and figure out the name of the Antichrist. Here's clearly, though, what I think he is teaching. And the key is in the phrase, it is man's number. Because don't forget, the Antichrist claims to be God. He will be worshipped as God. And the number for God and perfection in the Bible is what? Seven. And so when John says, now give yourself some insight here. This is man's number and his number is 666. I think that just simply he's saying that even though the Antichrist claims to be God, he is only a man and he forever falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though he's going to be, you know, in a sense, the, the, the greatest thing that Satan could ever come up with, he's still a man. He still falls short of the glory of God. So here you have God saying, the whole world is enamored with the Antichrist. The whole world goes after him and worships him because of his power. And all he's doing is being energized by Satan. And instead of worshiping the creator of the universe, the one who deserves and who's worthy of our worship, they go after a mere man and fall before him. 666. And you can run 666 out more than just three times. You can run it out as many times as you want. It always falls short of 
seven. He's a man. He's a man. And God doesn't want us to focus on man and on the Antichrist. See, one of the things that the book of Revelation is teaching us is that one day, the world is going to go back to the way it should be and the way it was supposed to be, in that it's going to be God-centered rather than man-centered. And God is going to be the focus, and God is going to be the center of everything, and God is going to be worshipped instead of man in his humanism putting himself up on a pedestal and platform and worshipping himself. No, it's going to be reversed, and God is going to be on center, and man is going to be there to serve and worship him forever and ever. Thank you, folks, for bearing with me tonight. We'll pick it back up here in chapter 13 next week. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for sharing with us, Lord, this information that can really help us even today. Because as we, as we read about the main characters in the tribulation, we realize that we're fighting, we're fighting that hidden power of lawlessness in the world even right now. And, and, and we're at war with, with satanic, demonic influences in our lives. And, and every day, whether it's the devil himself or obviously other demons, they're throwing things at us, accusing us day and night, uh, slandering us, and we're dealing with this all the time. So God, help us to be strong in You. And if there's any message out of Revelation for all the saints of God, at whatever time they find themselves in history, it is to be strong in the Lord and to focus on Him. And, and whatever we're going through, that God's power and God's strength will get us through no matter what it is. And instead of being distracted by Satan and all of his master of distraction and being deceived and getting so caught up in experience, God, help us to be students of the Scriptures. Help us not to live one more day as an experience-oriented, sign-oriented Christian, but help us to be a Scripture-oriented Christian who orients our lives and moves in our life according to the Scriptures not according to the way we feel, not according to the circumstances of our life or the signs around us. Because, Lord, we can be so deceived if we follow that. So, Lord, go with us. Thank you for these folks who demonstrate such a heart for you and for your word. And so, Lord, bless us and use us to be an example of scripturally foundational people in a world that is so desperately needing to get back to the Scriptures again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.